Section five of Confessions of an English Opium Eater. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Confessions of an English Opium Eater by Thomas de Quincey. Section five. Soon after the period of the last incident I have recorded, I met in Albemarle Street a gentleman of his late majesty's household. This gentleman had received hospitalities on different occasions from my family, and he challenged me upon the strength of my family likeness. I did not attempt any disguise. I answered his questions ingenuously and on his pledging his word of honour that he would not betray me to my guardians, I gave him an address to my friend the attorneys. The next day I received from him a ten pounds banknote. The letter enclosing it was delivered with other letters of business to the attorney, but though his look and manner informed me that he suspected its contents, he gave it up to me honourably and without demur. This present, from the particular service to which it was applied, leads me naturally to speak of the purpose which had allured me up to London, and which I had been, to use a forensic word, soliciting from the first day of my arrival in London to that of my final departure in so mighty a world as london it will surprise my readers that i should not have found some means of staving off the last extremities of penury and it will strike them that two resources at least must have been open to me viz either to seek assistance from the friends of my family or to turn my youthful talents and attainments into some channel of pecuniary emolument. As to the first course, I may observe generally that what I dreaded beyond all other evils was the chance of being reclaimed by my guardians, not doubting that whatever power the law gave them would have been enforced against me to the utmost that is, to the extremity of forcibly restoring me to the school which I had quitted, a restoration which, as it would in my eyes have been a dishonour, even if submitted to voluntarily, could not fail when extorted from me in contempt and defiance of my own wishes and efforts, to have been a humiliation worse to me than death and which would indeed have terminated in death. I was therefore shy enough of applying for assistance even in those quarters where I was sure of receiving it, at the risk of furnishing my guardians with any clue of recovering me. But as to London in particular, though doubtless my father had in his lifetime had many friends there, yet as ten years had passed since his death i remembered few of them even by name and never having seen london before except once for a few hours i knew not the address of even those few to this mode of gaining help therefore 
in part the difficulty but much more the paramount fear which i have mentioned habitually indisposed me in regard to the other mode i now feel half inclined to join my reader in wondering that i should have overlooked it as a corrector of greek proofs if in no other way i might doubtless have gained enough for my slender wants such an office as this i could have discharged with an exemplary and punctual accuracy that would soon have gained me the confidence of my employers but it must not be forgotten that even for such an office as this it was necessary that i should first of all have an introduction to some respectable publisher and this i had no means of obtaining to say the truth however it had never once occurred to me to think of literary labours as a source of profit no mode sufficiently speedy of obtaining money had ever occurred to me but that of borrowing it on the strength of my future claims and expectations this mode i sought by every avenue to compass and amongst other persons i applied to a jew named d to this jew and to other advertising money-lenders some of whom were i believe also jews i had introduced myself with an account of my expectations which account on examining my father's will at doctors commons they had ascertained to be correct the person there mentioned as the second son of was found to have all the claims or more than all that i had stated but one question still remained which the faces of the jews pretty significantly suggested was i that person this doubt had never occurred to me as a possible one i had rather feared whenever my jewish friend scrutinized me keenly that i might be too well known to be that person and that some scheme might be passing in their minds for entrapping me and selling me to my guardians it was strange to me to find my own self materialiter considered so i expressed it for i doted on logical accuracy of distinctions accused or at least suspected of counterfeiting my own self for maliter considered however to satisfy their scruples i took the only course in my power whilst i was in wales i had received various letters from young friends these i produced for i carried them constantly in my pocket being indeed by this time almost the only relics of my personal encumbrances excepting the clothes i wore which i had not in one way or other disposed of most of these letters were from the earl of hmm, who was at that time my chief or rather only confidential friend these letters were dated from eton i had also some from the marquis of hmm, his father who though absorbed in agricultural pursuits yet having been an etonian himself and as good a scholar as a nobleman needs to be 
still retained an affection for classical studies and for youthful scholars he had accordingly from the time that i was fifteen corresponded with me sometimes upon the great improvements which he had made or was meditating in the counties of m and sl since i had been there sometimes upon the merits of a latin poet and at other times suggesting subjects to me on which he wished me to write verses on reading the letters one of my jewish friends agreed to furnish me with two or three hundred pounds on my personal security provided i could persuade the young earl hmm, who was by the way not older than myself to guarantee the payment on our coming of age the jew's final object being as i now suppose not the trifling profit he could expect to make by me but the prospect of establishing a connection with my noble friend, whose immense expectations were well known to him. In pursuance of this proposal on the part of the Jew, about eight or nine days after I had received the ten pounds, I prepared to go down to Eton. Nearly three pounds of the money I had given to my money-lending friend, on his alleging that the stamps must be bought in order that the writings might be preparing whilst i was away from london i thought in my heart that he was lying but i did not wish to give him any excuse for charging his own delays upon me a smaller sum i had given to my friend the attorney who was connected with the money-lenders as their lawyer to which indeed he was entitled for his unfurnished lodgings about fifteen shillings i had employed in re-establishing though in a very humble way my dress of the remainder i gave one quarter to anne meaning on my return to have divided with her whatever might remain these arrangements made soon after six o'clock on a dark winter evening i set off accompanied by anne towards piccadilly for it was my intention to go down as far as salt hill on the bath or bristol mail our course lay through a part of the town which has now all disappeared so that i can no longer retrace its ancient boundaries swallow street i think it was called having time enough before us however we bore away to the left until we came into golden square there near the corner of sherard street we sat down not wishing to part in the tumult and blaze of piccadilly i had told her of my plans some time before and i now assured her again that she should share in my good fortune if i met with any and that i would never forsake her as soon as i had power to protect her this i fully intended as much from inclination as from a sense of duty for setting aside gratitude which in any case must have made me her debtor for life i loved her as affectionately as if she had been my sister and at this moment with sevenfold tenderness from pity at witnessing her extreme dejection 
I had apparently most reason for dejection, because I was leaving the saviour of my life. Yet I, considering the shock my health had received, was cheerful and full of hope. She, on the contrary, who was parting with one who had little means of serving her, except by kindness and brotherly treatment, was overcome by sorrow so that when I kissed her at our final farewell, she put her arms about my neck and wept without speaking a word. I hoped to return in a week at farthest, and I agreed with her that on the fifth night from that, and every night afterwards, she would wait for me at six o'clock near the bottom of Great Titchfield Street which had been our customary haven, as it were, of rendezvous, to prevent our missing each other in the great Mediterranean of Oxford Street. This and other measures of precaution I took. One only I forgot. She had either never told me, or, as a matter of no great interest, I had forgotten her surname. It is a general practice, indeed, with girls of humble rank in her unhappy condition, not, as novel-reading women of higher pretensions, to style themselves Miss Douglas, Miss Montague, etc., but simply by their Christian names, Mary, Jane, Francis, etc. Her surname, as the surest means of tracing her hereafter, I ought now to have inquired, but the truth is, having no reason to think that our meeting could, in consequence of a short interruption, be more difficult or uncertain than it had been for so many weeks, I had scarcely for a moment adverted to it as necessary, or placed it amongst my memoranda against this parting interview and my final anxieties being spent in comforting her with hopes and in pressing upon her the necessity of getting some medicines for a violent cough and hoarseness with which she was troubled i wholly forgot it until it was too late to recall her it was past eight o'clock when i reached the gloucester coffee-house and the Bristol mail being on the point of going off, I mounted on the outside. The fine, fluent motion of this mail soon laid me asleep. It is somewhat remarkable that the first easy or refreshing sleep which I had enjoyed for some months was on the outside of a mail-coach, a bed which at this day I find rather an uneasy one. Connected with this sleep, was a little incident which served, as hundreds of others did at that time, to convince me how easily a man who has never been in any great distress may pass through life without knowing, in his own person at least, anything of the possible goodness of the human heart, or, as I must add with a sigh, of its possible vileness so thick a curtain of manners is drawn over the features and expression of men's natures that to the ordinary observer the two extremities 
and the infinite field of varieties which lie between them are all confounded the vast and multitudinous compass of their several harmonies reduced to the meagre outline of differences expressed in the gamut or alphabet of elementary sounds the case was this for the first four or five miles from london i annoyed my fellow-passenger on the roof by occasionally falling against him when the coach gave a lurch to his side and indeed if the road had been less smooth and level than it is i should have fallen off from weakness of this annoyance he complained heavily as perhaps in the same circumstances most people would he expressed his complaint however more morosely than the occasion seemed to warrant and if i had parted with him at that moment i should have thought of him if i had considered it worth while to think of him at all as a surly and almost brutal fellow however i was conscious that i had given him some cause for complaint and therefore i apologized to him and assured him i would do what i could to avoid falling asleep for the future and at the same time in as few words as possible i explained to him that i was ill and in a weak state from long suffering and that i could not afford at that time to take an inside place this man's manner changed upon hearing this explanation in an instant and when i next woke for a minute from the noise and lights of hounslow for in spite of my wishes and efforts i had fallen asleep again within two minutes from the time i had spoken to him i found that he had put his arm round me to protect me from falling off and for the rest of my journey he behaved to me with the gentleness of a woman so that at length i almost lay in his arms and this was the more kind as he could not have known that i was not going the whole way to bath or bristol unfortunately indeed i did go rather farther than i intended for so genial and so refreshing was my sleep that the next time after leaving hounslow that i fully awoke was upon the sudden pulling up of the mail possibly at a post-office and on inquiry i found that we had reached maidenhead six or seven miles i think ahead of salt hill here i alighted and for the half-minute that the mail stopped i was entreated by my friendly companion who from the transient glimpse i had had of him in piccadilly seemed to me to be a gentleman's butler or person of that rank to go to bed without delay this i promised though with no intention of doing so and in fact i immediately set forward or rather backward on foot it must then have been nearly midnight but so slowly did i creep along that i heard a clock in a cottage strike four before i had turned down the lane from slough to eton the air and the sleep had both refreshed me but i was weary nevertheless i remember a thought obvious enough and which has been prettily expressed by a roman poet 
which gave me some consolation at that moment under my poverty there had been some time before a murder committed on or near hounslow heath i think i cannot be mistaken when i say that the name of the murdered person was steele and that he was the owner of a lavender plantation in that neighbourhood every step of my progress was bringing me nearer to the heath and it naturally occurred to me that i and the accused murderer if he were that night abroad might at every instant be unconsciously approaching each other through the darkness in which case said i supposing i instead of being as indeed i am little better than an outcast lord of my learning and no land beside where like my friend lord mm, heir by general repute to seventy thousand pounds per annum what a panic should i be under at this moment about my throat indeed it was not likely that lord should ever be in my situation but nevertheless the spirit of the remark remains true that vast power and possessions make a man shamefully afraid of dying and i am convinced that many of the most intrepid adventurers who by fortunately being poor enjoy the full use of their natural courage would if at the very instant of going into action news were brought to them that they had unexpectedly succeeded to an estate in england of fifty thousand pounds a year feel their dislike to bullets considerably sharpened and their efforts at perfect equanimity and self-possession proportionably difficult so true it is in the language of a wise man whose own experience had made him acquainted with both fortunes that riches are better fitted to slacken virtue and abate her edge than tempt her to do aught may merit praise paradise regained end of section five Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.